If you, if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Ephesians. As you're turning there, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning. We are beginning a series on the book of Ephesians. But before we jump into the the book itself, allow me to start out by recognizing something, for us all to be able to recognize something. We are very, a very habitual people, are we not? We all have our own unique little habits and quirks. We all have our own ways that we want to, to do things, things that ways that we've learned how to do things. And many times when we find a way that works, we like to stick with that. We become stick, stuck to the things that we say, this is the best way to do this. I'll mention some silly examples here because those were always great way to start it off. Um, I remember back in high school and in school in general, whenever the teacher would give us assigned seats, and I did not like it. I don't think anybody really wants assigned seats, but teachers most of the time would do that. They would give you assigned seats because groups of friends would cause noises or disrupt the class or whatever that may be. Well, I had a teacher, a math teacher, um, when I was in high school, and he didn't give us assigned seats. He didn't. And so we were like, oh my gosh, this is what freedom feels like. This is great. And so we were able to sit wherever we wanted, got to sit next to our friends, got to sit next to whomever we pleased. And then about halfway through the trimester, my school went on trimesters, not semesters. And halfway through the trimester, the teacher observed something. He said, you know, I, didn't give you, I don't need to give you guys assigned seats. You guys assign yourselves to assigned seats said, how many times have you sat in a different seat than what you're in now? And we all looked and we're like, oh, you know, freshman in high school, mind blown. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Like, this is crazy. He's unlocking the facts of life here. And I want to also bring that into a church context because I just want to mention, I came in this morning not telling anybody about that I was talking about this or mentioning assigned seats, but I'll ask you, are you in your assigned seat? Let me ask this, how many people, and I know there's at least two, how many people came in and saw someone else in your seat or not in their right seat and went, hey, what are you doing? Two of my conversations this morning involved that. I'm not going to mention who they were, I'll preserve that, but if you, if you were that, those two people, you know, you know. We have habits, right? I'll bring up another silly one for any of my fellow brothers and sisters who are coffee lovers. Are there any, is there anybody that's willing to confess your, your own um, socially acceptable addiction? This is my socially acceptable addiction. It is coffee. We don't like to be talked to in the morning before we have coffee, do we? We don't really want to be talked to in the morning. We kind of, we, for, for the coffee addict, your objective in the morning is to wake up and get yourself to the capacity to go get some coffee. And if you are married, or if you have a family member, or if your dad, for any of you kids, is a coffee addict, you know, don't, just, just don't mess with them until they have their coffee. Because we get grouchy. I will fully attest to this. It's one of the reasons I try to come in early in the morning, so I don't mess with anybody else when I'm, I don't have my coffee. We're habitual people. I'll bring up another example. We find our own little personal, pers- our, our own personalities, and each of them has their own outcomes or ways that you like to do things. I'll very naturally mentioning one of between those who are more introverted and those who are more extroverted. For those of you extroverts, you may begin to go a little crazy if you don't see anybody for a while. You don't talk to anybody for a while. You get antsy. You get on edge. You're like, I just, I got to go see how this person's doing. I want to be able to spend time with these people. And all of you introverts, and in some of you are shaking your head no. Just like, that is not me. Some of you introverts, such as myself, you're like, I don't care. I will stay away from people if I have the ability to. Right? 
And if you, for you introverts, if you spend too much time with people, get out of your habit of allowing time away to recharge, you get antsy. You get exhausted. You get tired. You get grouchy. It's interesting that when our habits are broken, the first natural reaction is grouchiness. I keep coming back to that. But we're very habitual people. And I think we do that for a number of reasons. But the one I want to highlight this morning is because we recognize the world around us is constantly shifting and changing. Is that true? We recognize that. And that's not even in a doom and gloom. That's just natural life. Life changes. And so we, we try to find different ways and places for us to have some sort of order in our constantly changing lives. I don't think all of that is a bad thing. In fact, I think part of that is how God wired us. But here's where I will bring in a challenge. And I'm not, believe me, as a coffee person, don't challenge me in my coffee in the morning. I'm not challenging habits. But what I am saying is that so much of our time, so much of our lives is building habits, is trying to build some sort of pattern of how to do life, how we wake up in the morning, what our careers are going to be, what our retirement plans are going to be, how many children we're going to have, how involved we're going to be with other people. We build these habits into in order to navigate through life. But what if I told you that God is constantly challenging us and telling us we need to be changing. We need to constantly be changing. The room just went quiet. We're like, oh, what are you, what are you trying to say here? I would like to make the suggestion that one of the primary themes in Ephesians, and the one that we're going to be exploring, is that when we look at the plan of God, a term that I will call the gospel, when we look at what the gospel is that God has revealed to us, the gospel fully revealed to us changes everything. The gospel revealed changes everything, and it requires change in everything. Nothing can stay the same after the gospel. And I believe that this is one of the primary themes within the book of Ephesians, both in the contents of the letter, but also in both the author and the recipients of the letter. So we're going to jump into the scriptures here. And before, but before we do that, I want us to take some time and pray. I want us to be able to pray this morning. Um, let's spend some time in prayer. Then we'll take some time looking over, getting kind of an overarching look at what the book of Ephesians is and what the Lord has for us as we go through this series. So if you would, please join me in prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you as your word is opened and Lord, our, our spirits are here and we are present. And Lord, I pray for any distractions happening right now to be removed. Lord, I pray for anything that would disrupt our ability to understand your word and what you would have for us to be silenced. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that your plan for me is not the person I am right now. Your eternal plan for me is not the person I am right now. I thank you, Lord, that your eternal plan for all of us is not the people we are right now, but we are constantly changing in light of the gospel. So, Lord, help us in that. Help us to recognize the challenges of your scriptures. Help us to recognize the discomfort that it brings and the requirement that we have to give more to you. Lord, be with these people. Be with all of us. Help us to grow closer to you and to honor you in all things that we do. Be with us this morning. Give me the words to say to encourage and convict where you desire us to be encouraged and convicted. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Ephesians, starting off right off the bat in the first two verses, we are introduced to two distinct parties. I will read the first two verses. We're going to be flying through the book of Ephesians here. We're going to be reading pretty fast, so I'm encouraging you to keep up. All right, so we've got, we're starting out in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians was a letter. It was a letter written by someone known as the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Ephesus, the Ephesians. 
The author is Paul. The recipients were, was the Ephesian church. Who are these two people or these two groups of people? One of them we recognize maybe a little better than the other, so we'll start with the easier one. Let's talk about Paul for a moment. Paul is one of those very well-known individuals in church, in Christian circles. If you've been in church, if you've been in a Christian circle, you've heard, at least at some point, somebody named Paul. He has a very famous story of how he came to Christ. Paul was raised in a Jewish context, and in doing so, he was trained in the law, the Old Testament, and to look to the promised Messiah that the Old Testament promises. And in doing so, he, you, would, you would study the word, you would try to maintain the letter of the law, figure out what God had told you to do, and hold strictly to that. And he was known as a, the word that was used to describe him and his faith was zealous. He was zealous. So zealous that when in his lifetime, a group of Jews claimed that the Messiah had come and that the Messiah was named Jesus— and that this Messiah died on a cross and, according to his followers, was risen from the dead, Paul, at the time, named Saul, we'll talk a little bit about that name here in a moment, but his name at the time was Saul. Saul was so zealous for what he believed was right that he justified going and persecuting this new group of, this new religion, this new belief system many times leading to imprisonment, torture, and even killing. I think we, we mention this, but we brush over the fact that the person who wrote this book was a murderer. He was a murderer of Christians. He may not have directly himself swung the sword, but through his actions, indirectly killed people. That's how zealous he was in his faith, that he justified it being okay to kill somebody. He was a murderer. And he was so zealous in this that he followed this, the spread of this belief from Jerusalem. It originated in Jerusalem, and then he carried on, he, it carried on outward into the surrounding region. So much so that he took a group of individuals to a city north of Jerusalem called Damascus. This is found in Acts chapter 9. And on this road to Damascus, Paul's life was changed forever. When it said that a great light shone from above and these words appeared to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? The voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul came face to face with a revelation of God through Christ. The Messiah appeared to him challenged him, and as a result, his life was never the same. The gospel revealed to Paul changed everything. That's, the, that's, our, that's our theme here. And so from there, he went on and became one of the greatest missionaries the church had ever seen, bringing the gospel in many ways to an entirely new continent, to the continent of, of Europe, at least as far as we can tell. We don't know exactly but planted several churches and when traveled around and shared the gospel and suffered as a result of which. And eventually, through his journeys, he made his way to a town called Ephesus. Ephesus was a major town back in the day. 2,000 years ago, back in the day. 2,000 years ago. Ephesus was known as one of the cultural centers of the Roman world, at least on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. Ephesus was located on, in, the, in the place that we would now call Turkey, the country we would now identify as Turkey. It was located on the eastern shore. It was a coastal city in many different ways. And with that came a lot of different peoples from the Greek-speaking world over into the Mesopotamian world with Assyrians and Babylonians and even Egyptians and, and Jews. And it was kind of this melting pot, if you will, of different kinds of peoples. And with different cultures and with different peoples means different religious beliefs. Different religious beliefs. By the time Paul showed up, he identified a group of people who believed, but believed in what it was called as John's gospel. This is found in Acts, I believe it's 19, is where it is. I believe it's found in Acts 19. But these were a group of people that had heard 
of the gospel of John the Baptist, that a Messiah was coming, and Paul came to them and connected the dots and said that that Messiah has already come, and they were thus baptized, in the scriptures it says, by the Spirit, and the revelation, the the recognition of that in their context was the speaking of, of tongues and foreign languages. And thus the church of the Ephesians was born. And this, this group of people were brought into the city known as Ephesus with a lot of different kinds of religions. And some of those people did not take too kindly to this new church, ultimately leading to a massive riot that was begun by idol makers, silversmiths of the goddess Artemis, very popular goddess within the town of Ephesus. The Ephesians were put in an interesting place where there were several different kinds of people that lived there. A majority of the Ephesian church was more than likely Gentile peoples, not Jewish peoples. There more more than likely was some, but a majority of it more than likely, we can't say for sure, but was Gentile peoples. And they were forced to recognize what the gospel told them to do versus the other gods that they used to worship. When the baptism of Jesus was revealed to them, their life was instantly changed. The gospel revealed requires, the gospel revealed changes everything. If you're going to get sick and tired of hearing that, I encourage you to maybe close your ears for the next few weeks because we're going to say that a lot. The gospel revealed changes everything. And not just in the book, but these two, the author and the recipient. The gospel changed everything for them. And it will change everything for us. When we're looking at the book of Ephesians, we're going to be trying to find out the primary theme of the book of Ephesians. And in many ways, it is talking about the gospel revealed. I've been saying the word gospel a lot. Many of you have heard the word gospel in your own mind. You, you've, heard, you've heard this. You've understood this. You've, you've, you may have even preached this to somebody else. But I'm saying that word a lot. What exactly do I mean when I'm saying gospel? What is the gospel. I would make the suggestion that in many ways, the reason we struggle to change into who God wants us to be is because we have a, a lacked understanding of what the gospel fully is. We have some ideas, but we have some sort of a lack and a full understanding of what this gospel is. I will call that an oversimplified gospel. The next question may be, well, how do I know if I have an oversimplified gospel? That's a very good question. I was trying to think of several different ideas of what that might look like, and I have some some points here where we can ask, and I want us to start saying the word we instead of the word I, and I'll mention that why. And when you look at the book of Ephesians, whenever it says you, you did this, you were this, you are now this, it's never in the singular. A primary theme in Ephesians is the group, the unity, the community. It's not individual. Never in Ephesians is it an individual. You can can check that for yourself. So I want us to start saying, uh, saying we instead of I. It's a hard challenge for us being in an individualized society. But when we're asking this question, we need to ask ourselves, as Calvary Baptist Church, do we have an oversimplified gospel. How do we know? We may know, we may have an oversimplified gospel if we think some of these things. We have an oversimplified gospel if we think that the gospel is simply about me asking Jesus into my heart. I talked a little bit about this last Sunday on Easter Sunday. We have an oversimplified gospel if we think that the gospel is only about my salvation. Maybe a part of it, but is it all of it? We have an oversimplified gospel if we think the gospel is about what God gives to me. We have an oversimplified gospel if we only spend time in community with Christians on a Sunday morning. Ooh, it's a little bit bigger. We have an oversimplified gospel when we know we need to love our neighbors and our enemies and still make fun of them in our thoughts or our words. We have an oversimplified gospel when our gospel does not have ethnic ramifications. And we have an oversimplified gospel if our gospel makes us comfortable. 
It's just a couple of different ideas to get our brain thinking, to ask, are we as a church, do we as a church fall into any of these habits? If we do, there is something in us, there's a part of the gospel we need to understand better. We need to change. With all of this being said, what is the gospel? What is our working definition of the gospel? My working definition for the gospel for us is this. The gospel is God's redemptive plan for all of creation through the work of Christ for the glory of God. I'll say it one more time. The gospel is God's redemptive plan, redeeming plan, saving plan for all of creation through the work of Christ for the glory of God. When you hear a preacher say something, don't take it at face value. Say, well, where do you find that? What scriptures do you use for that? One of the scriptures that I use in that is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. says this, very simply, it says this. It says that as a plan for the fullness of all time, plan for the, I lost it here, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, being God or Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The gospel, very simply, what the entirety of the scriptures points to is the unification, the bringing together of all things in God. And if we think about that for a moment, we recognize the craziness that that is, the, the ramifications that come from that. We have the things in heaven this, this place where, where God resides, where his perfect beings reside, where, where he sits in his holy and good presence, and the thing, all of the things on earth, all of the things on earth, a place that is full of wickedness, sin, violence, destruction, oppression, and injustice, taking both of those things and finding a way to, bringing them, to bring them together through the work of Christ. We're going to see that, and I want you to notice whenever you're reading through Ephesians, look for those places where things are coming together, where we are coming to God, where earth is coming to God, where, where, where there is this unification, this bringing together of things. I'm going to be a stickler and mention it whenever I see it this morning. It's a very big part of Ephesians. Bringing together sinful people and a holy God through the work of Christ for God's glory. That's going to be our main theme we're going to be looking at. And in doing so, I want to specifically look at two parts of the scriptures. There are two different points in the book of Ephesians where Paul has prayer requests for the Ephesians, where, where he prays for them. It recognizes and it says praying, literally praying for them. And these are some of the, the desires and hopes that he wished the Ephesians would adopt in order to be changed by the gospel. And I think that those are both really good places to start to recognize what Ephesians is going to look like. Those two prayer requests, the first one is found in chapter 1, 15 through 23. The second one is found in chapter 3, 14 through 21. Please go to the first one. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I'm going to read this in its entirety and pull out a couple of things. This is somebody else's sermon, by the way, so I'm going to try my best not to preach other people's sermons this morning, but... For anybody that may get that happening, I apologize in advance. You can make fun of me at that time. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23 says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, pausing immediately, pause immediately up here, notice what Paul sees in the Ephesians. The Ephesians have he, he has heard of their faith in Lord Jesus and their love towards all the saints, love towards each other. The Ephesians are doing a really good job. He recognizes it. He says, you know, you guys have got these things down. You're not doing horrible. This isn't a, a book of Galatians where there's false teaching that you're adopting. This isn't a book of, of, of First or Second Corinthians where y'all are just really struggling with a lot of issues. He's saying, you guys aren't doing that bad. And I think that we may hear that and go, oh, well, that's good. Until we recognize that even people that aren't doing that bad still have room to grow. Even if you are saying, sitting here and you're hearing me and you're saying, I feel like I'm doing pretty good, there is still room to grow. There's always room to grow. 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. First off, notice what he says there is that he is the head and we are the body, the bringing together. Notice that. I'm going to say that. The uniting of all things. Us being united with Christ, the body of Christ, and him as our head. Throughout this prayer request, I would say that his, his general hope for this is for us to know the blessings that we are given through Christ. The first half of this book is for us to recognize the blessings that God has given us through Christ. It's the first part is to recognize, to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the fullness of God. What are those blessings? What are those blessings? I find at least three, several, but three within the first part of this book. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. This is a very popular part of Ephesians. It's, it's in many ways a, the gospel. It's the through grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your work, but a result of, of his work so that no man may boast. It is the we are dead and our trespasses and sins. We are the sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath, following the course of this world, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the, that, that being Satan, but God. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, bringing together. I'm going to be a stickler about this. We're going to hear this a lot. This is what I would identify as the personal gospel. This is the part of the gospel that you and I understand a lot. Given our society, we understand an individual personal gospel, an individual soul being made right with God, through the work of Christ. We understand that. We use language such as my personal relationship with God, such as me and God. We use that sort of language to describe a personal gospel. And that is a part of the gospel. I don't want to discourage that. Absolutely, that is a soul being made right with God. But if that's our only gospel, we miss very fundamental importances of the work of God. That being, starting out with our personal Gospel. The second blessing that I want to recognize this morning is in chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 6. This is the community gospel. Starting in verse 11 says this, Therefore remember that you, that at one time you Gentiles, plural, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ. But now, in Christ. Less mature preachers would make a butt joke. I will refrain from doing so. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We recognize the one soul going to God. But we also have to recognize that we aren't just there. It's not about us. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. But when one soul is brought to God, the gospel is opened up to all peoples. 
And so when two souls are brought to God, think of a triangle here. If we have the bottom part of the triangle here, there's two souls here. God's at the top. They're going to both not only go and be with God, uniting of all things, but they're going to come together at the same time. The community aspect, the bringing together of the church, the community gospel. People talk about unity, some ways flippantly, some ways seriously. We're going to continue to talk about it in this series. It's a very important part of Ephesians. But what it recognizes is that we can't live as others live in the world in regards to unity or the lack thereof. We hear in many ways that we live in a divided world. The course of this world is to live in division, to be recognized by opinions, and to be alienated and tribalized into distinct groups that leads to division, disruption, and in the worst of ways, violence. The gospel allows no such thing. The gospel is an answer in a divided world. This, this is both in our unity, but also in the ways that we just interact with each other. And even when we don't get along with each other, we have this idea of struggles or arguments with each other within the church and either going to other churches or going to the other side of the room. Right? We think, I can't get along with that person, so I'm going to put them on the other side of the room. I'm not going to interact with them. I'm going to leave the situation and just try to, try to preserve the unity. That's not unity as God has designed it. If that's God's unity, that is, world, that, that is no different than what the world does. Polite people who do not believe in God can do the exact same thing. The gospel brings us together. There's a quote by a pastor, author, theologian, Eric Mason. He said this. He said that if there is a wall between you and another Christian, there is a ceiling between you and God. I'll say that one again because that's important. If there is a wall between you and another Christian, there is a ceiling between you and God. And this is what I mentioned with the ethnic ramifications because we think of this in, in our own context. But this opens up the gospel to all peoples within the world. 2,000 years ago, religions were very ethnically divided. You had your Greek region with your Greco-Roman gods. You had your Canaan, Canaanite region with your Canaanite gods. You had your Egyptians who worshipped Egyptian gods. You went far east and you had your, your, your region of India and Indian gods, Mesopotamia and your Babylonian Assyrian gods. Even your Jews with their Jewish god. Division, bringing, and, and, and it was hard to break that because it wasn't just a religious belief. It was an ethnic cultural belief. The gospel recognizes the beauty of different peoples from different cultures, but destroys the walls that separate us and demands us becoming together, becoming one. Things on earth, things in heaven, through the work of Christ. We don't talk about this as much, but there are these ramifications of peoples all over the world being united under the gospel, the community gospel. So we've looked at a personal one, a community one, and now we go to a third one, a universal gospel. The gospel isn't just about people. The gospel isn't just about the human race. We're a part of it. I would say we're a substantial part of it, but the gospel just isn't about us as humankind. But the gospel has universal wide ramifications, both things that we can see and things that we can't see. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 say this. Of this gospel, I, being Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, through the church, us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according 
to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access, access bringing together with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The church is the revelation of God's wisdom to the authorities and powers in the heavenly places. Angels and demons alike look at the way that God structured the church and marvel at God's wisdom. The angels bring in further praise and glory of the God who brought all humankind together under the gospel of Christ, and the demons shudder at the coming judgment because of the success of God's plan. The gospel has universal-wide ramifications. That original uh, prayer in chapter 1, 15 through 23, talked about not just in this age, but in the age to come. The coming age in which Jesus returns, in which evil is destroyed, in which God is on the throne. And as Revelation says, man's dwelling place is with him, the uniting of all things. If this first prayer request is to know the blessings given through Christ. The first half of Ephesians is to recognize God's blessings for us. The second half of Ephesians is to use those blessings, use and recognize that those blessings are there to give us strength to be able to honor God by living differently in our world. Living differently in our world. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, bringing together through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints unity. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of God. We filled with the fullness of God. Like I said, I'm going to be a stickler about that. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the purpose at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That prayer closes out the first section and brings us into the next section, chapter 4. It says, I therefore, based on this prayer, based on being strengthened by the blessings that God has given us through Christ, through the gospel, therefore... As I, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The blessings of God require walking worthy of God's calling. Walking worthy of this amazing gospel that saved you and I, us as a church, and the whole universe. How are we to walk? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. With, a new go- with this gospel, with this gospel comes a new unity and a new character. Our character traits cannot remain the same. The habits that we build through life, some of the ways that we act, because our, our, the ways that our character is, that is a habit in and of itself. Some of those habits we build, some of them mesh with our personality, some of them don't. But those habits, anything as big as the universe must change because of the gospel, anything as small as how you interact with another must change as a result of the gospel. Many times we can get discouraged by falling short, by not living the way we're supposed to, and sometimes we can sum it up as, that's just who I am. I'm not going to change, I can't change that one. That's how I've been forever. That's how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And I think part of that is just from discouragement and struggling to live according to the gospel. But there can also be a selfish part of that, can't there? 
with the gospel comes a new character, comes a new unity to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, which leads to living together well. And with a new unity comes a new church, comes a new way that we are supposed to function as a body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to pause on this one for a moment, and I want to recognize, and I want to share for a moment that there's a reason that personally, me as Preston, no one's telling me to do this, there's a reason that I prefer or tend not to speak a lot about our church's transition right now when I'm preaching on a Sunday morning. There's a reason why I don't. I believe that God's, that us gathering together as his people, worshiping God, recognizing salvation and glorifying him with his hope that he gives us. I, I want us to recognize that that is bigger than every struggle we ever encounter. And I want us to be encouraged by that while we wrestle through what we're doing as a church, as brothers and sisters, as friends as people on the same team. There's a reason that I don't mention it, but here I want to because it talks about what the role is of leadership, and that is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all attain unity of the faith. That's the goal. That's the task that God has given church leaders to do. And I want to mention that this series of Ephesians is trying in some way to accomplish that. Because this isn't a series that just me and Pastor John are going to preach once a month, and then in between there's going to be different speakers coming in, different messages from all over the place, other guests or whatever else. That's not how we're doing this. But instead, we've been able to reach out to folks in our church, men in our church who we believe have a gifting of of teaching, and we want to help grow that. And so we've developed a preaching team a group of men in our church that is passionate about the Word of God and wants to learn how to teach the Scriptures. And so there is a group of men, counting Pastor, counting Pastor John and myself, there are seven men in our church who are right now, as we speak, prepping their messages to preach through the book of Ephesians. Right now equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. I think sometimes we get discouraged by where we're at, that we tend to not always see how God is working. We tend to not always see what God is doing in our struggles. God is working. God is going to continue to work in his church how he wishes to. And, I would. and so part of this series is for all of us as a church to recognize the gospel revealed. Part of this series is to help some of our men learn how to teach the scriptures on a Sunday morning. And so recognize that. And whenever you see people up here that isn't me or Pastor John, it could be easy to get discouraged by that. But also we can recognize the way that God is working through others in our church how he is building up people to disciple, to prepare saints for the work of the ministry. And so I wanted to make sure that was was mentioned. I did want to make sure that was mentioned because I'm excited for that. I'm very excited to see how God will continue to work through that. And I hope you are as well. Something else I wanted to mention from this is, again, that idea of we versus I. Because when we look at unity within the church, we can say, I'm not doing, I'm not contributing to disunity, me, myself. I, so others may be, maybe some people out there may be, but I'm not. 
I'm trying to love everyone I encounter. I'm trying to speak well of everyone I encounter. I'm trying not to spread rumors or gossip or slander or whatever. I'm doing a good job. Some others may not, but I'm doing okay. This passage can sometimes challenge our natural desire to dismiss and say, I'm not the problem here. But again, if we think we as the body versus me as an individual, and we look at what Ephesians 4 says, it's talking a lot about how we all attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, all of us to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then it goes to the body. Where it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. The hand of a body may say, I'm doing okay where the lungs have cancer. But is the hand truly doing okay? It may be functioning, but there's a big problem within the body. The same could be said for anywhere else. If there's a part in our human bodies that is failing, that is struggling, that is hurting, that is causing problems or issues or division or whatever, then the whole body is affected. And so this is a challenge for us as a body to work together to instead of dismissing and saying, I'm doing okay, others may not, to go to some people and say, look, I love you. We need to work together on this. We need to grow together on this. We can't hide behind the I. We are a we. We must remember that. That can never escape our minds. And continuing in this, in the book, chapter 5 is another chapter full of big applications. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, walking as Christ walked. The gospel revealed requires change. The gospel revealed changes everything. We can't live as we live, but we must live as God lived, as Christ lived, conforming to the characteristics of Christ, right? And with that comes new ways that we act, and with that also comes new relationships with each other. Again, Ephesians, big push on how we interact with each other. Starting out in Ephesians chapter 5, 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We've talked about submission quite a bit from our previous series in 1 Peter. I won't, I won't um, get into detail on it this morning because we've talked through it, but we're going to continue to recognize our need to submit to each other. And not just submitting to one another, but recognizing unique family relation, unique relationships that we have. One between wives and husbands. Wives submitting to their husbands and husbands sacrificially loving their wives as Christ sacrificed and loved the church. It's putting the other above yourself. Children and parents. Children obeying their parents in the Lord and parents not provoking their children to anger. Recognizing the, 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 the need and the, the, the purpose of parents to raise up kids, but not doing so and provoking them to anger. Showing them the love of God as a parent. Bond servants and masters. Slaves and masters. Ways that slaves are to respect and honor their master, but masters are to recognize their slaves as equal. We'll talk more about that later. And then even a new relationship in our spiritual battles. Whether we like to admit it or not, we have a relationship with the enemy that seeks to destroy us. Not a relationship in the way that we have a relationship with Christ, but we interact with in spiritual battles every single day. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. And in light of the gospel, we have tools, armor that God has given us, if you will, to withstand the deceitful schemes, the temptations of the devil. And that's where we get to another very famous part of Ephesians, the armor of God. The ways that we use the gifts that God has given us to know the blessings and to live differently in order to fight back against the spiritual enemies that we have. And in doing so, honor and glorify Christ working through that. And thus that brings us to the ending of Ephesians. Chapter 6, 23. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible.
Now we could just end it here, but we'll but then what would we do for the next 14 uh, weeks? So we're going to be continuing through this. And in this series, what I want us as a church to recognize, again, we over I, I want us as a church to challenge ourselves to ask the question and to recognize that our, our concept of the gospel must continue to be challenged. Our concept of the gospel and its far-reaching ramifications requires us to be different, to change, to become whom God has called us to be through the work of Christ. And so the question we need to ask as a church is, are we taking this gospel and all of its revelation seriously? Are we all saying we all need something to grow in? We all need to recognize God's love more than we are. We all need to change, to grow more like Christ. Are we doing so? We can pray this as individuals, but we must pray this as a church, as Calvary Baptist Church. Because again, we can say, oh, I know what I'm doing. I've got this generally figured out. But does our church? And if not, what can you do to help us as a group, as a body that needs each other to grow together. What do you need to do? It's a way for us all to look as individuals and as a church and to say, are we taking the gospel revealed in its fullest seriously? That's my challenge for you. That's my challenge for us as a church as we begin this study in the book of Ephesians. I'm very excited for it. I am very excited to, for all of us to look and to fall in love with these wonderful blessings that God has given us that we so often overlook and recognize that we can be glad that we aren't going to remain the same people that we are right now. We all can look at ourselves and see our faults. We all can look at ourselves and see our sin. And we can recognize that God will continue to do a work in you and me as a church. And we can glory in the person that God is making, in the church that God is making us. Us. We are a body. We have a gospel. Let's ask ourselves, are we doing, are we taking the gospel revealed seriously enough?